Welcome everybody to my podcast, Big Little Small Talk. I'm Megan O'Hara-Sullivan and I love to talk, but I also love to listen. If you're new here, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome along to our segment that we call Big Little Small Talk. Here today, I have a very special guest, but I'm going to start off and you won't know who it is and I want to find out who this fellow is myself. So I've got a quiz for you and you're only allowed to answer yes or no. Okay. All right. Are you John Osborne, playwright, screenwriter and actor, known for your excoriating prose and intense critical stance towards established social and political norms. The world celebrates your success of your 1956 play, Look Back in Anger, which transformed English theatre. Yes or no? No. (laughs) No. Are you John Osborne, fencing contractor, number one provider of fencing construction and installation services? Your rural and domestic fences succeed at keeping trespassers off people's property while ensuring that livestock, horses and other farm animals remain safe. Definitely no. Okay. Are you John Osborne, who completed a PhD in exercise physiology at QUT in Brisbane, Australia? Your areas of interest include extreme environmental physiology, inflamed female athletes, fatigue and sports supplementation. No. Am I getting closer? (laughs) Well, the the association with sport. Perhaps. And helping sports people, yes. Okay. Okay. So I'm figuring you're not John Osborne, honorary associate priest at Sandgate, North Point, Anglican Parish. I know that. Well then, John Osborne, OAM, who are you? I'm John Osborne that was born in Toowoomba in 1944 and lived here all my life. I have had positions that have taken me, professional positions that have taken me away from Toowoomba, but Toowoomba's very much my home. It is your home. Well, that's where I want to start, John. I want to start by hearing about your childhood. I understand that you grew up in the city of Toowoomba and lived above a shop, is that correct? Can you tell me, what were your parents doing? My father had what I'd have to describe as a business empire, and we lived in Coringle Chambers in Ruffin Street, so you've got Heritage Bank on the southern side of Bell Street and Coringle Chambers on the northern side of Bell Street and that's where we lived in what you'd call today I guess a um, two-bedroom apartment. My father had some of his offices for some of his businesses upstairs so they were in front of where we lived like the apartment and then the business elements upstairs. It was quite a large building but, but I loved living in the city it was a town then but heavens if I could go back and live in the city today I'd be there one day John one oh, day abs- we abs- might do that absolutely <laughs> shop top living we're looking at it so when you say we who yes. was in the family unit uh, I'm an only child my father uh, and I guess it's important to set the scene properly he was 56 when I was born and my mother was 21. So I came into what you wouldn't call a normal family life. I mean, living downtown for a start wasn't considered the norm. And having parents where the father was more than double the age of the mother or wife was something that um, haunted, it's not the right word, but certainly I copped a lot of teasing about that through my early years in life. 
people asking you about why is your father so old? Was it that sort of thing? Or? Yes, or, you know, married a, a, a young girl sort of thing. Why was that, you know? Right, and yeah. were these people at school would ask you that, at the sc- other boys? At schools, yeah. Right, yeah. I would have thought that they wouldn't care. No, well, I don't know. I think it was so unusual. Yes. It was so unusual. Like, neither my mother or father had any involvement in my school life or anything like that. And I think that was largely because they felt some difference to others. I mean, there's no question in my life uh, at all, or mine, that they loved one another dearly. I mean, my father had a... Um, an appendix burst at the age of 76 and my mother never left his side for seven years it took him to die. Never left his side. We all, she ordered the groceries in and, and everything. So, you know. Mm. How did they meet each other, John? Uh, that's an interesting... <laughs> never mind me, just stay on them. My father lived in Clifford Street on the southern side of Margaret Street with his brother Alf, and my mother lived with her parents in Gary Street. My father used to see my mother coming out of Milne Street from the north to turn left, east in (laughs) Margaret Street, and my father would be coming out of Clifford Street at about that same time. Are we walking or are we on bikes? No, no, walking. Walking. Mother on the northern side of Margaret Street and my father on the southern side of Margaret Street and Mm -hmm. walk down and... Mm -hmm. My father used to see my mother go upstairs in the, I think it was the Stock Exchange or Exchange Building in Margaret Street. And uh, how they met, interestingly, the fellow that owned that business, which was Downs Finance Company, was a man called Julius Cohen, a Jew. And he was well past retirement age and wanted to sell the business. And he literally pestered my father for, as I you know, the story's been told to me for years. And anyway, he encouraged Dad to go and see him one day. And Dad went up to see him and goes in the front door and looks to the right and here's this beautiful young girl he admired for the past few years. And so that's how they got together. And Dad did buy the business. He did, right. (laughs) Had your father ever been married or had any other children? Yes, he'd been married before and had two sons. Interestingly, neither of them were given his family names, like John Edwards, E-D-W-R-D-S, Osborne. And I'm John Edwards Osborne VII. So that's something that's always fascinated or intrigued me or raised questions. I, I don't know. I, I've never been able to answer that, but right. that's what it is. Okay. And you said that he was quite a wealthy man. How yes. had he made his money? Had he inherited money himself? No, no, definitely not. His, uh, his father uh, was an alcoholic, a really severe alcoholic, if that's the word, and they lost everything. And so my father was left because his mother had died, and so my father was left to care for four other brothers and two sisters. So he didn't have it easy, but we had a car yard, we had two petrol stations, the finance company, which of course he used to finance people into the vehicles that he sold and other businesses like that. And then he became a registered bookmaker, one of the largest in Queensland. Probably disappointed that I never took an interest in racehorses. I just had too much of racehorses and and business, but I 
can look back now and see how many of the trips I went on with him were designed, uh, no other word for it, as business education mm-hmm. in the real practical mm-hmm. sense. Was he a loving father or did he seem very aloof and remote and distracted by business? Remote, I don't say aloof, remote, very stern, very stern. Mm. And did you ever see anything of the other yes, brothers? Yes, uh, strange, yes. Uh, they used to come and stay with my mum and dad in their Christmas holidays because they lived with their mother on the at Southport on the mm. coast. So yes, and it, 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 strange as it seems, but I became closer to both of them than they were to one another. Right, yeah. What was the age difference between oh, you and the next heavens. brother? Uh, Oh, gee, it would have to be getting towards 18 years, I would think, Mm -hmm. the oldest one. Mm -hmm. And you say that you were living in above the shop. Mm -hmm. Would would people be, the whole sort of stream of business people coming into your, not into your accommodation, Mm -hmm. or did you have exposure to a lot of your father's business? Yes, yes. And we moved, I think, I would have not long started school, uh, we moved to uh, 143 Russell Street, which is on the um, northeastern corner of Russell and Corey Street. Beautiful old home. I, I have many fond memories of that. But so that's where we lived. My father, I think, through the growth of the tyre retreading and tyre sales company that he had, uh, made a lot of money. And somewhere, the accountant that he had poorly advised him and we lost every cent he had. I went to school one morning and I came home and my parents were sitting in the curb in Corey Street. So Junior had to go to work. That was you? That was me. Right. And what age were you then? About 13, 12, 13, somewhere in that vicinity. That, that part, I've, I'm not good at recalling a lot of my earlier life. Some things really stick in my mind. The, the sight of my mother and father sitting on the curbs, one, but the, that sort of detail in terms of age. But I was very fortunate that I used to sell newspapers because I started this interest in sport called cycling, which neither my father or mother knew anything about and weren't sure they liked it anyway, not that they ever knew what it was. But the learnings or teachings my father gave me were always from personal experience. You know, if you want something, well, then you've got to earn money to get it. And so I used to sell newspapers and wasn't, I guess, unusual that I chose to sell them of a Saturday at Clifford Park Racecourse. And I found that very lucrative because fellows would come out and, you know, have perhaps one or two beers too many and buy a down star from me on the way out and, you know, pay me five shillings or whatever it might have been instead of the sixpence. And if I rode to the where they published and printed the newspaper... I think I got an extra halfpenny a paper commission. So I'd always ride and get the papers and then ride out to Clifford Park. So just before we go on to your working life, which sounds like it started quite prematurely and maybe a little bit traumatically, can I just go back to your mum? Did you feel like a much-loved, precious thing for her? Were you very close to her? Yeah, extremely close, but I think that was more generated I think through her dominance rather than love I think she always wanted me to be the very best person I could be and control I think was important to her but she was certainly very proud of me there's no no question about that 
Mm. So let's go back to the sitting on the curb. So what happened then? Where did you go to? Did did you could you go to either of their parents? No, because they my, my father his parents were buried in Orange in New South Wales, and no, we I don't think it would have been well accepted if my father would have needed to have gone home. So I, to be honest, uh, Megan, I can't. I just can't. That's a piece I can't put together. I don't mm. know whether I'm. I'm hiding something or not, but it's yeah. I've just mm. never been able to mm. put that piece together how mm. how that came about. But interestingly, there was a job came at the Down Star at that very time, and I wrote an application with the guidance of my mother, and she was very good at that. And lo and behold, I got the job. Right. And so you went from delivering papers or <laughs> selling papers to writing for the paper. No, no, no. Huh? Stereotype was you, you made the replica, albeit back to front, um, of the pages from which the paper was printed. So you have your big cylinder in your printing press and you have these stereo plates which are semicircular and you, you have two of them, both the same, and so one either side of that printing cylinder. And so that's how your paper's printed. But before I was offered the apprenticeship, I had to serve a three-month probationary period and uh, that was a pretty hard introduction to working life um, because if you've ever seen a printing press where you've got the papers flapping out at a great speed and you've got to pick them up in sets of 10 and take them, like t- 10 sets of 10, take them down to the wrapping room, put them down then just keep running backwards and forwards like that all day while the paper was, uh, was being printed. So that was my introduction, I did that. (laughs) Do you sort of remember, like, just that moment where you think, I'm not going back to school, or it was quite accepted that kids left school due to whatever circumstance and... um... Uh, It may well have been an escape for me, Megan, because I really didn't like school all that much. I didn't like the confinement. It wasn't the discipline. I didn't ever have a problem with that, but it was the confinement, and I think that became clear to me later in my life because I seemed to have a creative mind and being a school child there wasn't an opportunity for um, creativity. Mm, you generally had that whacked out of you didn't Ab- you if you were off daydreaming somewhere Ab- looking absolutely, out the window. Absolutely. Mm. Well listeners I'll just remind you that we're speaking to John Osborne OAM today in our big little small talk segment and we've got up to the stage where he's got his first job he's had to leave school quite suddenly because his father sort of boom and bust type business has lost everything and John's got to go to work and we've just heard about him going to work for the West not Western, Western Publishers. The Western Publishers. So was that the only newspaper in Toowoomba at the time? No, no, the Chronicle and the, the Down Star was established by a group of investors that had some background in newspaper publishing, but they engaged the very best journalists, photographers, you name it. It was a formidable newspaper and one that the Chronicle quickly became alarmed by and... It was commonly talked about, you know, the need to force the Downstar out of business, which happened not all that long after I became an apprentice. Okay, so you became an apprentice and then the newspaper folded? Yes. And what what did you do then? Well, the the newspaper still kept going. Interestingly, 
it was Mr Rowe, the late Mr Treg Rowe, that purchased Western Publishers Lock, Stock and Barrel and he kept it going and he, in a sense, was, well, not my first boss, but you may as well say my first boss because the other one was short-lived, but he was a wonderful man to work for, knew very little, I guess, about printing of a newspaper and we used to smile over Friday night because Friday we used to print the Downstar, then the Star Pictorial, which was for Saturday. And so starting time would be at 8 o'clock as normal on a Friday morning and you'd be lucky if you got home by midnight or sometimes after. And Mr Rowe used to come in with his three children in their dressing gowns and ready for bed to show them through this newspaper. And I really admired the man and admired the man right up, still do, although he's passed. But, yeah, he was a wonderful, wonderful man. Right. And so what happened with you, John, then? Did you sort of move through the ranks or...? Yes, I became initially foreman and then foreman in charge of the stereo department. My original person I was signed on to, Alan Hilston, then he had moved across to be like the, the foreman in charge of both stereo and the actual printing side of the business. So, um, and he was, a, he was a very tough man, tough uh, life. Uh, he'd had and um, yeah so it I, I think it was a good grounding for me. Mm-hmm. And how long did you stay there? What was the sequence from there? Uh, did you ever have a uh, sort of desire to go and become a journalist or? No, no. no. I, the funny part was whilst I was there I participated in a schoolboys cycling initiative that was Australia-wide at the time and Queensland was divided into various divisions and so I competed in the Darling Downs division and won that and went on then to compete in the Queensland Schoolboy Championships on what was the old Strathpine Aerodrome and I got my backside well and truly whopped uh, and was a, a, a rude awakening to where I was in the world of cycling because I did very well here in our club racing but you know really saw the enormous gap and I think that was one of the things that drove me to become a cycling coach because I didn't want young girls and lads coming into the sport without having somebody there to guide them and teach them and and coach them about what was needed to become a good cyclist. Mm. So you mentioned earlier about your parents not being terribly interested in cycling. How did you get into it? Just exactly like I said. I mean, said. everyone had a foot uh, had a um a pushy, I suppose. But how do you go from that to racing? Well, you 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 go to the club racing, which used to be at that time up on the showgrounds, because Griffith Park was a dirt track, was donated to the city by the Griffith family, and there was one clause in that deed that said there must always be a cycling track there. It doesn't say what condition, but it must be. And so right through the lifetime, there's always been a cycling track there. And at one stage in my early years as president of the club, it was the best regional velodrome in Australia. And it was built according to the world governing body UCI plans. And then we were the first regional club in Australia to have a floodlit velodrome. I was very fortunate that you wouldn't be allowed to call this committee this in the current day, but it was a ladies' auxiliary. <laughs> oh. And what they raised the money, oh, did they? They just right. incredible. 
incredible. They literally worked themselves day and night to raise money for the club for years. It's incredible. I love hearing stories like yeah, that. That's, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I often my... wonder whether I ever thanked them You're sufficiently. Right, but yeah. yeah. I would I imagine I that you did. So we'll just we'll talk about cycling a little bit in the in a minute because I know that that's a really important part of your life. So we go from working at the newspaper. So what happened after that? Like, did you stay there for a long time? I think to, you told to, me you had a business of your own, a clothing business at. <laughs> No, 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 no. I, I, I took after my father very early in my life, not long after I uh, uh, got my licence, because he had a couple of car yards, second-hand car yards. And so Mr McComsky, who owned and operated City Autos in Harry Street, which was the building next door to the Downstar, the other side of the lane. And so I became a friend through my father, but not by any introduction to my father, it just sort of morphed. Mm. And so he used to purchase cars that at times, like if they'd come off a farm or somewhere and were dirty, that he wouldn't want to take into his yard. And so had I, I'd learnt well off my father to deal, and so I would buy off Mr McComsky at a, at a good rate. rate. yeah. yeah. Uh, at at a, a, a bartered but agreed rate and then clean them up and sell them and so I supplemented my income in that way. Right. But cycling, it was through, I organised, again, I think it was, it was Brian Scott, he was an apprentice butcher, he was a few years older than me, but he's the man that actually got me into the schoolboy championships originally and uh, he took me away because he, he was racing to a two-day race meeting up in Karoi on a beautiful little ant bed track, lovely track, and I'd never seen cycling like I saw it there, two days of it, you know, top riders, etc. And so I'd always had this ambition to duplicate that event in Toowoomba, and so I got to do that, I think, either 1971 or 72 was the first year of that. So you became really involved in the club, and yes. you became the president or yes. whatever, and then the ladies organised all of this money, yes. and then you put on this event. Is that the that, sequence? That, that, oh, I think we'd had the October carnivals for a few years before we were flood with, but I've probably jumped around there a bit because I was recognised as a good event organiser, promoter by people like Mrs Clearly, Jean Clearly of Clearly's Motel, Bill Mitchell, Queensland Government Tourist Bro, people like that, Reg O'Shea and others that were involved in some aspect of the tourist industry and saw me as the right sort of person, I guess they wanted being younger, to come in as a member of the Toowoomba Chamber of Tourism. So I did that, and that was my insight to tourism. And so the council and the Chamber of Tourism and Motelis combined resources to garner enough money to employ the first ever full-time tourism promotion officer in the city. Which and was? Which you. was me, yeah. <laughs> and what year are we talking here, roughly? Uh, well, I work with Common Co Coaches first after the newspaper then the can uh, no the carnival of flowers first as the organizing secretary and it was in a bad way very much on its knees you know huge debt and left them with the support of other board members alf welford was the president a very very hard tireless worker and you know cleared the carnival of all their debt for years and left them with a a handsome profit 
and then was encouraged by Mr Bolton to go and work as the company's first public relations manager and to be involved in the launch of their first express coach service because up until that time Cobb Co only ran tours out to like Central Australia and Western Australia and those places but no point-to-point -point express service and so the company had determined that there was an opportunity to run the first express service from the Gold Coast to Brisbane, Toowoomba and then directly down the Newell Highway to Melbourne and it was a success from day one which reflected well on me and even till the day when the Bolton family had a split and that service was sold and it sold I think for probably the highest of any express service mm. anywhere mm. so it was highly successful. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed that enormously and that the company wound up on the Friday and on I think it was by the either the Friday afternoon or the Monday morning, I had Mr McCafferty on the phone wanting to know, did I, was I looking for... He said, I heard you, you I can still hear his voice. I hear you look, looking for a job. Well, I couldn't grab the job quick enough <laughs> and I really enjoyed working for him. And that's then where the position as the city's first full-time tourism officer became available and I went from McCafferty's into that position. Okay. And what to you, were you sort of thinking at that stage, can you remember, were you thinking, this is not really sort of where I'm heading, I will end up being a businessman working for myself like my father or you were kind of just I, I taking every opportunity that came uh, to you? I think I took every, being a realist, I took every opportunity was offered, evaluated it and then moved into it, boots and all. Like, there was no half measures with me. <laughs> so we'd, we're suddenly in this job. I can imagine it would have been quite exciting and quite sort of diverse compared to sort of working for someone every day and as a tourism officer, working for a council and a and Well, it wasn't council. It was for, for Toowoomba Chamber of Tourism. Mm -hmm. So we had the Chamber of Commerce mm -hmm. and then, oh, okay. then the Chamber of Tourism. So, yeah, that, that was exciting and, and um, I really didn't know what a tourism promotion <laughs> officer did. There was, there was no how-to book. And, there was no uh, manual. No manual. No. And there were... What tourism op promotion officers there were, were um, by and large employed by the local authority of the area. Whereas this, in a sense, there was a grant from the Toowoomba City Council, but the money which was needed to run advertising campaigns and all of that had to be self-generated by the organisation. So that, that was hard, Yakka. Working to develop the city's first tourist guide, that was interesting. That mm. was a you know, hard lesson. Mm -hmm. But um, Always at that stage still concentrating on... The Garden City was it still that the the real focus then still that that Toowoomba oh, is the oh, Garden yes, City yes, and our yes. point of unique difference is the climate and the gardens and A the absolutely yeah. and 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 will be Megan for many years to come but the time has come really that there needs to be another string to Toowoomba's bow now that doesn't mean that the Carnival of Flowers it will always remain but there is a real need to have diversification in our tourism product. I can clearly recall the challenge that came up many, many times at Chamber of Tourism meetings 
we're at a disadvantage because we, we haven't got a, a direct air service. But we worked hard at generating opportunities to bring tourists here. I can remember one of the first things I did was because we, we formed the Darling Downs Motelliers Association, the Restaurant and Caterers Association, the Queensland Hoteliers Association was already in existence, but once we got the motelliers and the uh, restaurant and caterers together, that created greater activity and stimulus within the regional uh, group of hoteliers. So you had those three elements or four elements of tourism come together. And that was one of our strengths ahead of many other areas. If you look, Megan, it wasn't too many years into that, that uh, there was a conference, it was a world conference for tourism journalists held on the Gold Coast. And so that, sorry, we moved away from the Toowoomba Chamber of Tourism at that time because there was a regionalisation of tourism. So the state government established 14 marketable tourist regions, one of which was based around Toowoomba. So there was a grant available for that. The Chamber of Tourism combined then with Eric Geldard, who was the chairman of the Marilla Shire Council, who then they had a, an organisation called the Golden West Regional Tourist Association going. They didn't have enough money. The Tourism and Development Board, of which the Chamber of Tourism was an arm, was very financial particularly in the tourism portfolio. And so we combined resources and became a recognised one of the... We probably would have been the first, but I think politically it was smarter that the Gold Coast got that honour. But there was this world conference of travel riders and we went down there and took a display and it was a display based on what the Toowoomba-Darling Downs region had to offer. And so there was the flowers, but there was also the crops and, and the mountain scene and the mountain air and all of that. And we won the best display at that World Conference, which centred an enormous amount of attention, both verbal, you know, people talking about Toowoomba, but also journalists writing about Toowoomba and journalists wanting to come here and experience what Toowoomba had to offer. Mm. So that played a big part. I think, in, in cementing Toowoomba as a very real tourism product, mm. not a coastal tourism product, because at that stage, that's all there, all there was. You went to the ocean for your holidays. You know, there was little thought of going inland. Well, that played a, a big part. Mm. And if you wanted to take a step further, in a sense that followed, there was a chap in Canada, in uh, Montreal, a fellow called Woody Fisher, that wanted to operate regular tours out of Canada for farmers to come into Queensland. And this letter that went to the Queensland Tourism Travel Corporation was distributed amongst the tourist region and I saw great opportunity there if we could get those people out onto the properties and show them real life in Australia on the properties. And, and did you get that happening? Oh, did God, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We, it became the most successful home hosting international scheme mm. in Australia. I mm. mean, people like Peter Ziesmer and his wife and Sullivan's out around that Bonjean area, you know, they mm. welcomed, there'd be, at that time, your bus was carried 54 passengers. So there'd be 54 people 
go to their place for lunch and and the farmer or the you know the the business they the the farm the property would show them around and they were happy to do that and equally the, the there was a friendship started mm. from the local people with the visiting mm. farmers mm. and that just exploded that was an incredible mm. success and i still wonder sometimes why that wasn't continued after i yeah. left this position i'll just remind the listeners that they're on community radio 102.7 FM and we are in our big little small talk segment where I get to talk to someone interesting in the community and that interesting person today happens to be John Osborne OAM and he's told me up to a certain point in his life it's been a fairly varied career already and thank you for being with us and it's always I find it very interesting and I hope you do too we're going to talk to John more about your cycling career so you're still cycling competitively while you're working as the tourism officer oh oh yes Yes. I, I competed in open company I never went to masters in open company till I was 41 I was given the opportunity to become the Queensland coach for both road and track and that naturally was a voluntary role. I didn't ever expect to be paid for anything I did for cycling and being club coach here we we uh, developed a number of young riders that went both male and female to become Queensland champions and so then I guess from that it gave me the entree uh, with a young rider, Bruce Mackey, who went on to be a record holder in most um, divisions, like from 500 metres to 40 kilometres sort of thing. Um, and he gained selection in the Queensland team and it was to the national championships in Perth. And I wanted to go and see what the national level of competition was and that was a real shock to me. In what way? Well, we had our best senior riders, over 18, that were in the interstate carnival that was held the night before or two nights before the start of the championships and involved every team from every state. Uh, And we had some of our riders um, graded as C-graders. They were our best riders, graded as C-graders in the senior level. And they couldn't finish the five-mile event with the rest of the field. Well, that just absolutely opened my eyes I thought hell we're miles beyond here yeah um behind the pack so that really inspired me then to look at this coaching seriously and so what did you do then did you talk to other people or you know what 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 did you do to become a better coach there was not a lot around that you could learn from certainly to any great level there were good club coaches and I was a good listener. I always listened to what what people had to say, you know, people that, that had some successes as a coach and then either modified or built on what their practices were in in coaching the lads here. Mm. But I, I was very, very fortunate that my years as club president... Um, I had very good support, you know, the ladies auxiliary and the mums and dads and and so we just went on to bigger and better things. So was it, um, you know, the, did the technology of lighter bikes and all of that sort of, we talked briefly before about that other John Osborne with the exercise physiology, but was it all about learning how to go to the gym and um, get stronger and um, or technique in terms of, you know, shadowing and... 
You can well, see I don't know a lot about cycling. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, the, the, no, the, the lighter bike, certainly I remember when I first started road racing as a, as a juvenile, so I think 16 mile or something was our limit, but we had three-speed gears, so you had three sprockets on the back and you changed by a lever similar to today up the front. But you were very lucky if you were able to ride the 16 kilometres without having to stop and adjust your gears. So they were just so simple. They were manufactured by a company called Simplex. But, uh, <laughs> ironically. Yeah, ironically, yeah. But no, the, the, the high technical aspects and the improvement, the r- enormous improvement came much later. But I read this article by one of Australia's greatest cyclist, a fellow called Jack Fitzgerald in, from Melbourne, and he talked about the ability uh, of riders are only as good or as fast as they could pedal. And so from that I took the real essence of being a good bike rider was to learn to pedal properly and pedal fast. Is there anything other than pedalling with cycling? <laughs> well, oh, it's interesting. Seems as Somebody, funny sort of things to say. <laughs> well, some, if you get people that have studied the sport, and even today sometimes I, I can go to a, to a race meeting at the Annamere's Velodrome or something, and I'll see a rider there, what we refer to as pedalling in squares. So they come to a point where the one pedals up the top and one down the bottom, so there's a hesitation. Whereas if you can pedal fast and smoothly, there is no hesitation. So interesting. And it was always the belief when I first started that you had to ride higher gears, bigger gears, harder to push, in order to become a better bike rider. But the funny part was I was never strong enough, so by accident almost, I'd taught myself to pedal because I had to ride a smaller gear so my one revolution of my pedals might only take me forward 76 inches, whereas stronger uh, men, um, they might go forward 90 inches or something. So I had to pedal a lot faster to, just to keep up with them. So, so that was my first... John, I want to talk to you about the Tour of Toowoomba. Tell me yes. about the event that that was and your involvement. You were obviously the... Convener, the organiser, the president. The... It was it was my baby. I we had the national road series established by um, Cycling Australia, and um, this was in the eighties, nineties. Uh, sorry, and the only state in Australia where there was n- not a national road series event was Queensland, and I was determined that that. Queensland wasn't going to be left out and I was determined that we would have a national road series event in Toowoomba and so I approached different um, different high profile businesses because the amount of money required for police and traffic management plans and you name it was considerable um, you know I think the first year it was a hundred and something odd thousand dollars and there's no opportunity for you to get any money from the crowd or anything like that. Um, and so I sent a letter to uh, the uh, Gary Gardner, who was the managing director of FK Gardner at the time, and I got this phone call from him this night. And I was in the car, 
and there was no speakerphone in the car, so I'm trying to, and I, it was a very poor connection. But anyway, the long and the short was, but for Gary Gardner and his support for the first six or eight years, there would never have been a tour of Toowoomba. But if you look at the number of riders that performed well during the years of the Tour of Toowoomba, they're the best example or, yeah, best example, best product of, of no, best example of the quality of the Tour of Toowoomba. Um, there at one stage, not long after the Tour of Toowoomba had finished, I think there were 14 riders that were picked up as a result of their performance in the in the uh, tours of Toowoomba. Mm. So that in itself. But, you know, again, I, I'm a very hard person to work for. I understand that. But I'm harder on myself. Our standards are very, very high. And we ran that for six or however many years it was. And we never once had anyone go off course. Um, the events and the time and the planning and all of that uh, was meticulous. Uh, I, I wasn't working by that stage. I decided to give up work and uh, devoted, you know, virtually 12 months of the year, one tour to the next of organising it. And it really, today, it wasn't long ago, Megan, like three, four months ago, I got a call from one of the owners of the big, biggest uh, teams um, in this part of the world from New Zealand. I used to bring a team over every year, wanting to know when Toowoomba was going to wake up and reinvigorate the tour of Toowoomba. Well, we might leave that hanging there, <laughs> shall we? Can we go back to your riding? I mean, it, you seem like you're ahead of your time. I mean, men on bikes, now you see them everywhere. They're, they're everywhere. Exactly. exactly. So you, are you still riding? Yes, yes, yeah? yes. I still love going for a ride. Love. And I ride most days. I ride about 250 kilometres most weeks. Goodness. Do you ride with a group? No, I ride on my own. I got um, I got hit uh, by hit by a motorist uh, one Saturday afternoon when riding out to the crit course at the showgrounds along um, Stenner Street. A beautiful, sunny Saturday afternoon and uh, my right shoulder was totally destroyed and I had to have a full um, shoulder reconstruction mm. and I had four of those operations in Toowoomba and all failed and eventually thankfully uh, was put in touch with um, the um, doctor in, in Brisbane that was a specialist in shoulder reconstruction and by that time I my internals of the injuries had sort of gone almost septic and so I, I eventually the, there was the total reconstruction of my shoulder mm. but I had never been prepared to put myself at risk riding in a bunch that if, if I fell that would be the end of me and equally I didn't want to put others at risk the fact that I had a an arm that wasn't as strong mind you I've worked vigorously since then to get it as strong um, so that I can hold my bike in a straight line. Yeah, right. Interesting. Now I've got a, we're running out of time quickly. I'll just remind the listeners that we're talking to John Osborne OAM who has told us lots of stories about where he's been and what he's done. I haven't even got to the volunteering at Cobb Co yet. 
You were on council, mm-hmm. John. Tell me about that. Oh, well. <laughs> um, that came, uh, Megan, and thank you for that question, that came as a direct result of my strong desire to give back to the community. And I think um, I'm the youngest alderman ever to have been elected. Well, we'll and have to see about that. What age were you? I think I was th- 30 or something like right. that. Right. I think Councillor James O'Shea, I thought he had oh, the well, um, but maybe it. we're that's, wrong. That's, it's a regional council, be fair. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I am the youngest, I'll, I'll say the youngest because <laughs> there's no longer a uh, Toowoomba City Council. But certainly I was... Oh, you know, like years and years and years younger than anyone else on the on the council, and then later on, Clive and others came on that were younger. But in my first couple of terms, I was by far the youngest. We're dragging the average age down to seventy five, were you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or you? Yeah. And did you enjoy your time there? I did. Yeah. I did immensely. It. 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 Um, I. Because the thing that. Uh, when I nominated it, one of the first questions I was asked by a journalist from the Toowoomba Chronicle was, what's my platform? Well, I really didn't know what a, a platform was, but explained, well, to me, it was, and, and this, this came, I didn't have to sit and think about it, it was there spontaneously, that um, I give a commitment to... Um, view every matter that comes before me without fear or favour. Mm. And I, I adhered to that. You did that? Yes, and I think that, to me, was provided me with a good grounding as an alderman because it, it didn't matter if it was a wealthy person that came with a project or a person that was flat out putting money together to get a project up and running. They both got the same hearing. That's great. Fantastic. Now, as I say, I'm running out of time, but I want to hear about how you get an OAM. Were you nominated by someone? Obviously, you were. Um, yes. And it was for your services to cy- the cycling world or yeah, to the was, community in general? It, or? Was, it was interesting. It was like a three-pronged thing. And I don't really know to this day, Megan, who it was. Don't that, you? No. And, and I, I never... I thought it would be rude of me to pursue that. <laughs> You're not dying of curiosity? No, I don't probably, but I think that's, <laughs> that's, that's long gone. But um, What a huge honour, though. A huge oh, honour. Unbelievable, unbelievable. I, I, uh, yes, it was for my service to the community, which I guess would have been my years as an alderman, um, uh, my service to the sport of cycling, and my service to the Olympics and Commonwealth Games because I was the fundraising, again, a voluntary position, chairman in, uh, of the, both the Olympic Games fundraising and the, the Commonwealth Games fundraising in Queensland for many years. Right. So that, that, that was the sort of triple prong base on which I was um, mm. granted or awarded the, the OAM. Mm. And I take it we'd kind of given up selling the used cars by this stage, yeah. had we? Yes. Logging off the used cars from <laughs> Mr <laughs> McGregor or whatever. Mr McComsky, yeah. Mr McComsky. No, that had long passed. Right. But I think, it, it, I couldn't say it equaled, but it ran very close to the OAM the night I received the award 
for the most significant contribution by an individual to Queensland's tourist industry. Brilliant. And that was, that's really special to me. Well, I guess listeners would be familiar with the fact that I have a few left field questions. And one of yours, John, was, when have you been most happy? Have you just answered that question for me? I think so. Receiving those awards? Yeah, you really felt that you're sort of um, an un, um, unsolicited too. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. Recognition by others um, and, and prestigious. It's not that I, I've never flaunted either, but it's just the comfort that comes from knowing that. You did a good job. I did a good yeah, job. Yeah, and it was recognised. Okay, well, what about perhaps the worst advice you've ever been given? Uh, that's easy. The worst advice I was given, um, don't ever do any more than you have to at a job. Oh. That was totally foreign to my upbringing and totally foreign to my attitude towards employment, uh, uh, you know, right up until the day I decided to give up work. Okay. You know, my... I better I better not ask who it was that gave you that advice, hey? We better not. Um, you might have a defamation suit on <laughs> yeah. your on your hands. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you tell me who it was. Well, what about the worst advice you have ever given someone? <laughs> Would you be modest enough to say? <laughs> uh, yes, I'd be modest enough, but I don't. I I honestly can't clearly identify. That's because they haven't ever come back well, and said, "Mate, that was the worst yes, advice you've yeah, ever given I've, me." I've never had that. Opportunity certainly, people have come back to me with modicums of, you know, it was good, but yeah. nobody suggesting it was that bad. That was the worst advice yeah, you ever gave yeah. them. All right, well, we'll take that one off the list. Well, how about this one then? Did you ever have an imaginary friend when you were a child, or even now, perhaps? Yes, I, that's easy for me. That was Rupert the Bear. Oh, yeah, childhood storybook, and I, I, I had a uh, in my early years had a sandpit. And I used to build towns and cities with the electric light wires made of cotton and all that sort of stuff. So I had this vivid imagination, but I would always talk to Rupert. And so, yeah, he was, he was my advisor. And it's funny, at times I still think of Rupert the Bear. Oh, is that so sweet? Yeah. Do you know what ended up happening to Rupert the Bear? Did he one day disappear into the dustbin? Or? I, I think he may have, but I've, I've still got... I was later, some time during my life, I was giving a, given a um, small Rupert the Bear, which has pride of place in my car. Oh, that is the sweetest story. Okay, well, this one might be, um, you might have to search through some of your extensive memory because it sounds like you've taken a, a lot of risks in your time, but what, do you, what would you think would be the biggest risk that you've ever taken? Oh, my decision to, because the stock market was something my father had no belief in at all. Um, you couldn't touch or feel it, it, you know, it wasn't real. And I bought... I think it was 500 or it might have been a 1,000 Ampol Petroleum exploration shares and they cost me threepence a share and that I bought them on a um, Friday or on a Friday and by the following Tuesday they dropped down to tuppence <laughs> and that I thought holy moly mm. and I was nearly tempted to sell them I thought that wasn't a good move, but I sold half of them. And I think that's probably the, 
the worst advice I gave myself. Gave yourself. So yeah. they really increased in value, oh, did they? Right, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, really escalated. Right. Yeah. And why did you get involved in the stock market? Was it something that everyone, your friends were doing? Or no, you just no. Again, you I was, was the... Game. You game. Just you'd have a game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to read the share market in the, in the Down Star and for whatever reason became fascinated by it. Right, yeah. and do you still invest in yes. shares? Yes, Right, yeah, you're watching it all the time. Okay, who's your favourite royal? The listeners will know oh. I love the royal family. I'm a royal tragic. It's Good. my guilty pleasure. Yeah. What about you? Oh, I'm, I'm proud to say I'm a royalist. Oh. I, have, I have been since 1954, I think it was, when Queen Elizabeth and the Duke visited Toowoomba and stayed overnight at um, Clifford House, which was just down the road from 143 Russell Street, where I lived with Mum and Dad. And Mum had um, beautifully decorated the front veranda with the silver, blue and red royal colours. And the Rolls Royce with the Queen and Duke in pulled up. It was a concrete bridge across the gutter, quite steep in that part of Russell Street, onto that bridge to stop and look at our... And I was standing on the veranda at the top with my mother and I just about pulled her over in my excitement to get to the Queen. So did you go down then? No. No. Oh, no, no. Heavens, I wasn't allowed to do that. Right. But yeah, right. yeah. Have you watched The Crown, John? Yes. 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 I'm watching it at the moment. Yes. I'm always a bit late to things, a bit yeah. of a late adopter, but it is so, it's a beautiful series, Absolutely. isn't it? Absolutely. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. So you, I didn't let you finish there. It's The Queen, is it? Very definitely. Very much so. Very definitely. I think she's... Um, well, she's been the longest-serving world leader, and I think she's done an extraordinary job through lots of lots of oh, difficult times, lots in, of periods of change, absolutely, incredible absolutely. periods of change. You know, yeah. to think during the war, she worked as a mechanic. You know, getting mm. her hands dirty, grease, mm. all of that sort of thing. She, mm. She's always been there mm. for and with her people. Yes, incredible, hasn't it? And then to sort of morph into um, all the social media of oh, the younger ones abs- and all of that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I probably wouldn't admit it to too many people, but you and I sort of being royal lovers together, that's okay then, you think? Absolutely, right. <laughs> absolutely. Okay, so my very last question for you I thought is... That was the last. No, that wasn't. One more to go. What's a song that you know all the words? To. Uh, there's not a song I know all the words to. What about but, God Save the Queen? Yeah, you know well, God one. Save the yeah. Queen, I know right. that one. Sorry, sorry, very definitely. <laughs> Didn't quite treat that as a song. Well, let me put it in another way. If someone said, come on, we're going to get up and do a karaoke tonight, mm-hmm. what song would you say? Well, put this one on for yeah, me. Yeah, uh, Johnny O'Keefe, She's My Baby. Oh, I perfect. Grew, I grew up with Johnny O'Keefe. Johnny O'Keefe, She's My Baby. She's My Baby. All right. Well, Paddy Menz might play that song for us now. And, John, thank you so much for being so generous with your time this afternoon and taking us through your incredible life growing up very, very, very locally here in Toowoomba. Wonderful. And I think you will have stirred a lot of memories in people listening to all of the names and the businesses that you've talked about here. So it's just been a wonderful trip down memory lane. Thank you. Thank you. been a marvellous experience for me, a unique one. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining me on Big Little Small Talk. 
I hope you can make the time to join me next week. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favourite podcast app.